when I was growing up, my dad, well, we often had a tossed salad with dinner, especially in the summertime. My dad would always make this salad. Um, he'd put tomatoes in it and lettuce, cucumbers, radishes. We love radishes. And he'd cut it all up and into small pieces, tossed together, well mixed. But my dad would not use salad dressing, maybe a little celery salt and pepper, and that was it. Now the rest of us would douse our salad with dressing. Scott McKnight uses a metaphor of a salad to describe the church. The way it too often is and the way it's supposed to be. And he says there are actually three ways to eat a salad. You have the American way, the weird way, and the right way. So let me explain these. The American way of eating a salad is to fill your bowl with some iceberg lettuce or spinach leaves, maybe a few tomato slices and carrots, and then you smother it with salad dressing. That's how I did it growing up. Ranch, Italian. If it's a special occasion, we'd have Caesar. And if you live in Nebraska, you have Dorothy Lynch. Now, the weird way to eat a salad is to separate each item on your plate and then eat them as separate items. And people who do this tend not to even use dressing. Like I said, weird. Now, the right way to make and eat a salad is to gather all of your ingredients. You have your spinach and some kale and some arugula, iceberg lettuce if you have to. You chop it into smaller pieces. Then you cut up the tomatoes and the carrots and the onion, red onions and the red peppers and the purple cabbage, and you maybe add some nuts to that, some sunflower seeds or some dried berries, top it with some Romano cheese. Are you getting hungry yet? And all you have to do at the very end is add a little bit of olive oil because somehow that a good high-end olive oil will make all those different tastes rise and, and have more, fill your taste buds with, you'll taste each, uh, each ingredient better with that olive oil. It brings the taste out as fully as possible. So this has got to be what God intended when he created a mixed salad. So my point is very simple, but it's not easy. A good tossed salad is the same as how the church should be a mixture of different kinds of people not a uniform gathering of likes and all the same age and same race, same culture, class, education, even precisely the same, same theology slathered over in a uniform taste. The church has never been called to be a melting pot. Now we know that the earliest Christian churches were made up of people from all over the social map and they formed a, different, a fellowship of different tastes just like that mixed salad with a little bit of olive oil, the best kind of mixed salad. You need to understand that the early Christians did not meet in churches where they're sitting in pews apart from one another in rows, and then when the music ends, they go get in their chariot and they ride home. The earliest Christian churches were smaller than this one. They met in homes, or what we call house churches. And there's a recent study out by a British scholar who concludes that in Apostle Paul's day, the house churches were composed of about 30 people. And I want to show you their approximate makeup with um, some bullet points there. You might have a craft worker. That, that might be the house where they meet. And his wife and his children came to this church. 
He probably had a couple of slaves that were part of this church. Maybe he's got some renters and some other slaves, freed slaves or not, that are part of the church. Um, you might have some family members come, but the, the leader of the household didn't show, just the family members. Um, some slaves and their owners didn't come to the church. Uh, maybe there's some freed slaves. You'd for sure have a couple homeless people. Next slide, please. And a few migrant workers that maybe are paying rent for a room. They would be coming to the church. And you add to this mix some Jewish folks and maybe a prostitute. And you start to see how many different tastes are in a typical house church in the city of Rome. Men and women, citizen and freed slave, and the slave who has no legal right, Jews and Gentiles, people from all moral walks of life, and most notably, you've got people from the elite classes of society all the way down to the homeless people, all in the same church. Now you can, I'm gonna ask you a question, I want you to respond out loud. Do you think these folks agreed on everything? No, Impos impossible. Were they a fellowship of difference? Yes, is the right answer. Do you think life for them in first century, life together was hard? Yes. That's the whole point of what it means to be church. The Christian life is never just about how I am doing as an individual, but especially about how are we doing as a church. How am I and what am I doing in the mix of this group of other people that I call or we call the church. God designed the church and the heart of Paul's mission is to be a fellowship of difference, a mixture of people from all across the map and the spectrum. And you know what? The church I grew up in, bless its heart, I love those people, but the church I grew up in was a fellowship of sames and likes. There was almost no variety in the church I grew up in. It was composed entirely of white people with the same beliefs and the same tastes of music and worship and sermon and lifestyle. Back then, men wore suits and ties and women wore dresses and I always had to wear a skirt or a dress. And as soon as we got into the uh, entryway of the church, I had to pretend that my mom and I had not had that fight in the car on our way to church. Whatever your childhood church experience was like, you need to recognize that you bring that with you to this church. You bring that into our fellowship as the way to do church. And getting the church right is really important. The church is God's world-changing social, social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table so that we can share life with one another as a new kind of family. And when this happens, we get to show the world what love and justice and peace and reconciliation and life together are designed by God to be. The church is God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as family. It is no secret. I've only been on staff here for a year and a half, but I've sat with enough of you at table to know that we don't all agree. Surprise! In this local expression of the church, we will never agree on all of the same theology slathered in ranch dressing to eliminate any tastes. That's the American way, 
and it has seeped into our church culture. So this morning I want to focus on the idea that the body of Christ is a diverse body made up of many different people of different colors, tribes, nations. In the psalm that Ileana read for us, we read about the lovely unity that comes from having God as our Father. When you get to Revelation, you start reading about all the nations will come and worship God. In the Galatians text that we have just read about Paul's strong declaration that we're one in Christ, we read there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, Paul didn't mean that we have to do away with our cultural or national identities, or even when male and female. He's not saying we have to do, do away with our sexual identity. What he's saying is there's an identity that trumps or surpasses all the other ones, and that identity is more important than anything else. We are, first of all, Christians, followers of Jesus, when we surrender our lives to him. All the other distinctions that we want to make should not be barriers to our fellowship together. All of that is secondary. A good way to think about this is using adjectives and nouns. Are you an American Christian or a Christian American? The noun is always more important than the adjective when you describe yourself. Every part of the world, every culture, sees things differently and has various hostilities. In Paul's time, they made this huge distinction in the book of Galatians um, between Jews and people who were not Jews. The Christian faith had sprung up out of their Jewish roots. Many of the people in the Galatian church are holding tightly to certain elements of their faith, such as people being circumcised, and they're saying, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, this has to be part of the package. But Gentiles and all the non-Jews are saying, nope, that's not the case anymore. Jesus abolished the need for circumcision. Jesus abolished the need to eat or not eat certain foods. So if we're holding on to things that have to be vital in order to enter the kingdom of God, what you do then is replace faith in the death of Jesus with some form of works-based righteousness. We are saved by grace alone, in Jesus alone, by faith alone. All other distinctions and differences that we have can be transcended through our faith in Jesus. Now, in the passage in Galatians, Paul looks at three different ways that we identify ourselves. Some of these are going to be easy for you, and some of them might be more challenging. The first one is our culture. It means if someone's going to come to faith in India and dress a certain way because of their culture, they don't have to change the way they dress to be a Christian unless it's violating another principle of sexual immorality. That's the beauty of our Christian faith, that it accommodates various cultures in terms of how people dress and what they eat and what they drink. The kingdom of God, says Paul, surpasses all of those things, and their earthly temporal habits, and if we stand back at the eternal big picture, grand scheme of things, there should not be barriers to people coming to know Jesus and serving him in our culture. You know as well as I do that in the Muslim faith, women have to wear a certain type of clothing and dress a certain way. You know that there's regulations on what you can and cannot eat. Some Hindus are required to wear a turban, but the Christian faith has always moved beyond those externals and is more concerned with matters of the heart. Nowhere in Scripture is there ever been a description of what Jesus wore except when it came to the cross and the Bible tells us he was naked. The Bible doesn't tell us anywhere what Jesus looked like or what Paul looked like 
It's just not a concern of the New Testament writers, and it should not be a concern for us as well, unless it's something excessively showy or sexually immodest. That's the beauty of our Christian faith. It's never about what we wear. It's about our heart and that we know Jesus. Second, Paul does not want us to make distinctions in terms of social class. An aspect of the Roman Empire that was prevalent in their culture, first century, but not as prevalent in ours, was slavery. Freed slaves, unfreed slaves, and then you have people in the higher echelons of society. It was a real mixture of all kinds of people studying God's word together in those first century churches. Nowhere else in their culture where you're going to find people rubbing shoulders with one another, but you found it in those churches because Christ was the most important thing. If you have your Bibles open, I think it's on the screen as well, Luke chapter 8, verse 3. If we look at this verse real quickly, we have mention of women who supported Jesus and the disciples. There's a reference here to Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna is also mentioned, and these were women that had some means. They were not poor. These were wealthy ladies who could support the work of Jesus and his ministry. The early church was a fellowship of difference, rich and poor, free and slave, ruling and lower class. Jesus brought them all together, and this was very radical in Jesus' day. While the rabbis would just focus on the males, Jesus broke through that barrier. And the point that Paul is making in Galatians 3 is that once you become a member of Christ's church, we're all at the same level. We are all sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We come to the cross on the same term as sinners. We should relate to each other on the same basis as fellow sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Sure, we all have different stories of how we came to Christ, and we can celebrate those differences and those stories, but we're all the same at the foot of the cross. The third barrier is that Paul breaks down, I've already kind of mentioned it, is the male and female piece. The fact that Jesus had female disciples is very unusual. And I'm not talking here about wiping out gender distinctions. Paul's not talking about that. Our maleness and our femaleness is important, but you need to understand that it still comes underneath being a Christian. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. This is extremely radical. So one of the strengths that I think we have as a congregation is some diversity. There are old people and young people here. I see male and female. I see single people and married people employed and unemployed. I, some of you have big houses and some of you have small houses. Some of you are employers while others of you are employees. I see some traditional Baptists in the room and I see a few charismatics. I see introverts. I see extroverts. You can go on down O Street easily right now to a nearby church where there is no one in attendance over 50 years of age. And we all know about churches here in Lincoln where you won't see anyone under 50 years of age at the church. We need both. We need to encourage and celebrate and interact with both. And this is where the challenge, so far you're probably like, uh-huh, I understand, I agree with you for the most part. 
But this is what we have to unpack during this short series. Um, we know this stuff in our heads. We read it in scripture. But the reality is we need to work it out with our hands and our lips and our feet. What does it truly mean to celebrate our differences and encourage it and say that we're the body together? And this is going to mean that I'm going to start to push some of you and the natural boundaries that you have that you've allowed to build up around you. That's normal. It's natural. We get really comfortable with how things are. But the reality is that we start to drift when we only live into our natural boundaries. And we are called as Christ's people to a supernatural peace as well, where we push through some of those boundaries. And we don't want the natural to influence the supernatural. We want it to be the other way around, where the supernatural and the Spirit of God at work in us is influencing our natural tendencies. If we're really going to celebrate being a fellowship of difference, how are we doing on this? Some of you only interact with people that you know well and you don't speak to anyone else. You come in and you go out of this building and you don't really know who sits in the pew across from you and perhaps you don't even care. But to be the body, to be brothers and sisters together, I'm a realist. I try to be. I also figured out that I'm a human being and I can't be the next Messiah. And so I've learned over time that there's a limit to the number of people that we can get to know. And there's even a smaller number of people that we can call our close friends. But somewhere in between this number of close friends that we have and not interacting with anyone else at all, there's got to be a balance somewhere in the middle for each of us. So here's a really easy application. One small way that you can start to celebrate our differences. Sit in a different pew next week. Ooh. I'm waiting for the lightning to strike. We are creatures of habit. You will really mess up the preacher if you move around next week, because I know where all of you sit, and I'm not even the regular preacher here. Some of you have been sitting in the same pew for years. Have you ever thought about sitting in a different pew? This is radical. Jesus was radical. It's small, I know, but it's really a big thing. It's huge. You might get to know someone else instead of having glue on your pants. I hope that by the time Pastor Evan gets back from his sabbatical, if we are doing our good work while he is away, that people in this room will be talking to different people over coffee. People that have never stayed for coffee will now stay. that some of you will invite someone you don't know very well to lunch or dinner and get to know them. A table is the center of so much of Christianity, and I'm not talking about the Lord's table and communion. So much of Jesus' interactions with people are around tables and meals, or the culture of our day would be coffee, coffee dates and lunch dates, because that's where you truly get to know people and where so much of the real body life work gets done. Some of you are introverted, and you will find this especially challenging, but you need to know that when you push through natural barriers with God's supernatural spirit, you are enriched. This is one of the ways that we become a richer and more blessed fellowship, getting to know someone else's name. 
that's faith in action. If that's what it is that if that's what you need to do, get to know someone else's name. It's about being a fellowship of difference. And the only criteria is that you get to know someone you don't know. You may recognize their face and you may know someone by their face, but you've never actually sat down and had a conversation. And I've as I knew that I would challenge you with this, I also wanted to consider what might hold you back. Why do our differences tend to get in the way of our unity? What is stopping the flow of the Holy Spirit in our local expression of the church? There are typical idols. We can chalk it up to money, sex, power. All those idols are here in our building as well as any other church building. But I was at one of our weekly prayer meetings a few weeks back and thinking about what is holding us back, specifically First Covenant. And I was caught off guard by what came to me quite forcefully. It's my opinion, and that's all it is. It's not what I expected it to be. It was the idol of individualism. As modern Western Christians, everything has to be for us. We have personal preferences in our worship, personal preferences in our preaching styles. The consumerism of our culture has totally seeped into the church, and what did I get out of it today, and what was in it for me? We are comfortable with everything the way that we want it. And most of us don't walk into this room at 10.30 being prepared to be put out. Scott McKnight, in a different book called One Life, says at the core of the kingdom dream of Jesus, there is a focus on God's society, the church. The dream of Jesus never creates individualism. The dream of Jesus always creates kingdom community. Many people say they want a genuine community, but they're not willing to lay down their lives in the pain of relational struggle. The Christian life And the Christian church is never about the individual. Remember that we is bigger than me. We are a messy family. There's never been and never will be a golden era of the church where church has been done perfectly. There is no perfect church. The church was and is today still the most radical social experiment in the history of our world. And we've been called to be part of the experiment. So not only is there no perfect church, we need to get rid of the myth of self-reliance and live into this truth that we is always bigger than me. The Bible's focus, read it from the beginning to the end, and you'll see that what God is doing in and through the world and through the people of God, page after page, chapter after chapter, 66 books in all, the Bible tells the story of Israel that morphs into the story of the kingdom, that morphs again into the story of the church, and the me story is contained in this much larger we story. It means that we, as the people of God, share our lives. So the best word for the church in the whole New Testament is not the word church. That just means a gathered assembly. The best word for church is fellowship, which simply means that we're sharing our life together with one another. Precisely what happened 
to the first Christians when the Spirit of God plopped them all together in these house churches across the Roman Empire. The we of fellowship is more than just spiritual, it's social, it's financial. But fellowship is not something that we can create. It's something that God is the result of God's God working in and through us. When God's people live in fellowship together with one another, when they're doing life together, then the church embodies the gospel of the King Jesus and people start to respond to the gospel about Jesus. When we live in fellowship together, the me finds much joy in the we. It's messy, believe me, it's very messy. No matter what the mess is, though, the gospel is always at work to turn messy people into holy people, even if it takes a lifetime or more. It's in the day-to-day messiness of the local church that me becomes we, not an individual spiritual formation regime. So to go deeper as Christians and to go deeper as a congregation, as a church, as a fellowship, We need to celebrate and be thankful for our differences as a family of believers. But that also means that you're going to have to make some little and big sacrifices. Because we are meant to be a foretaste of heaven. We are meant to be a little taste of heaven where everyone is equal. We are children of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the more we aim for diversity in our unity, the more that we mature and grow up in our faith, the more that we display the glory of God through the church. May this happen more and more at First Covenant. I'm going to invite the band to come, and I'm going to invite the rest of you to enter into a time of guided prayer with me, because these are some serious things that we need to pray about, and various names and faces have popped into your mind as I've been talking. So you are, as I said earlier, first of all, a follower of Jesus. Anything else other than that should not be a barrier. But that's easier said than done, right? We have barriers. So as you close your eyes, I'm going to invite you to pray about what barriers come to mind when you think about our congregation. And I want you to pray about those barriers. And then we'll sing a verse and we'll pray again and we'll sing and we'll go back and forth in this time of prayer with talking to God alone and singing together as a body.
maybe a little bit harder question. Who in this church can you learn from? Who in this room right now has the wisdom and the compassion and the gentleness and the faith that you want to learn from? It's okay if you want to look around a little bit. When the name comes to mind, I want you to pray that God would give you the courage to talk to that person in the next couple weeks. Let's pray to that end. turn that around and my question for you now is who in this church needs to be loved who is going through a hard time and I want you to pray that God would give you the grace to care for them and meet their need so now pray for that person 